Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. This is episode 230. Collaboration is a good thing, right? So why is it often so incredibly difficult to collaborate, especially with those who have a different point of view? If we're honest, it can be very hard to navigate those differences and to do so in a way that yields the most constructive and potentially innovative results, while at the same time, maintaining some semblance of a personal relationship. This challenge, frankly, lies at the heart of what it often means to build and sustain influence in our lives and careers, the core mission of this podcast. But what do you do when you're forced to collaborate with someone you simply cannot stand? What then? We've all been there, right? Well, that is the topic of this week's conversation with the fabulous, truly fabulous Dr. Deb Mashick. Named one of the top 35 women in higher education by Diverse Issues in Higher Education, Deb is a tenured professor, business consultant, and former nonprofit executive. She was actually the first executive director of the Heterodox Academy. We talk about that in our conversation. Deb's new book is called Collabor Hate. It's just been released and it comes at a time when workplace stress is at an all-time high, whether it's stress over layoffs, over political differences, or just the overhang of COVID. We face unprecedented challenges to getting along and working together. But when we get this right, it can make a huge difference in our ability to not only come up with more innovative, creative solutions, but also to build and sustain real influence in our lives and careers. Now, in this conversation, Deb and I talk about why we aren't better at collaborating and what we can do to develop some of those basic skills. We also talk about why conflict avoidance might seem like the right approach, but in fact, doesn't yield the best results. Now, whether you're collaborating in the workplace, in your business, at home, at school, maybe all of the above, I think Deb's tips and perspective can make these interactions less painful and ultimately much more productive. But most of all, 
She gives us so much to think about related to how we approach collaboration in the first place and some ways that we can draw out the most creative, innovative thinking from diverse groups. One of the many things that I love about this conversation is that Deb and I actually got connected through my daughter's former fourth grade history teacher, Cynthia Bader. Cynthia now works as an education consultant, and she is an avid supporter and cheerleader for She Said, She Said podcast, and I am very, very grateful for her and very grateful that she connected me with Deb, and I think you'll agree. Here is episode 230, my conversation with Dr. Deb Mashick. Deb, welcome to She Said, She Said. It is such a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you. I have been looking so forward to this conversation because I got to cheat. You sent me an advanced copy of this book, which I was really thrilled about. I had a chance to read it about a month ago. I love it. There is so much great information here. So I want to sort of start maybe from the beginning. Let's level set the stage and talk about collaboration and why it matters. I mean, we talk about it all the time, right? But just level set for the audience. Why? Why is it so important? Well, it's interesting. We do talk about it all the time. And we often talk about it in this very hand wavy way of like, hey, we want more collaboration in the world. And yes, I agree. It's a great thing. But why is it a great thing? It's because collaboration is what enables us to solve the world's trickiest problems, to innovate the most amazing solutions, the things that we don't even know we need yet in the world. And very few of these advances take place with just one person involved. You know, like there are always other people involved. And if there are ways of making collaboration less painful, more productive for everybody involved, sign me up. Because I think a lot of us, myself included, we see that collaboration is valuable, that we want to be doing it, that we quote should be doing it. But then when we actually get into the the trenches of it, it can be a total slog. It can be really painful, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of fallen projects and dashed expectations and ideas that just didn't come to fruition, not because it wasn't a good idea, but because the people who were engaged were not playing well together. And I am interested in figuring out how to unpack that and how to make it a more navigable tool that we can all use to have the sort of impact in the world that I know we can have. Yeah, I love that. I love that. The title of your book is called Collaborate. So the H is silent, but it it essentially gets to this to the pain points that are involved in collaboration. Why in your view, Deb, and you have spent a ton of time, this is your background, you study this. Why do we not talk about those pain points as readily? Why is that not also kind of hand in glove, right? Yes, we need collaboration, but it's going to be really hard. Why don't we acknowledge that? Yeah, there's some sort of uh, kumbaya around collaboration. It's like all things togetherness. Yay, let's do this together. We're going to do a collab. And it's just this kind of default. I've used the word around it before. It's, there's some toxic positivity that <laughs> around right. this word collaboration. And somehow it's we're not allowed to talk about, and I don't really mean we're not allowed to, but we often seem to shy away from talking about the hard stuff. And so, yeah, I tucked the H in that title. Some people love the title. Other people hate it. Great. At least they're talking about it. I'll take it. But, you know, I want to kind of elevate that there are tricky parts. There are snags. And we don't really teach people how to collaborate. And so there's this disconnect if we say it's important. 
It's clearly critical in the world. And yet it's largely invisible in our professional development. It's um, largely invisible in our students' experiences, whether it's in my kiddo is now 13, but when he was eight, he came home with this horrible collaboration story from third grade. And I spent many years teaching college and the college students are also not learning how to collaborate. So there's this weird constellation of it's important, but we don't teach it. And I think it's because we think, oh, it's a social behavior. Therefore, people are either good at it or they're bad at it. It's a sink or swim sort of thing. And I just don't buy that at all. And so I feel like let's don't hide behind the the rah-rah collaboration is fabulous. Let's let's say like, yeah, sometimes it really sucks. Here's why and here's what we can do about it. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about it as you're saying that I'm thinking about that very famous book, Everything You Need to Know You Learned in Kindergarten. And there are some really fundamental elements of getting along that you do learn in elementary school. But maybe to the point that you just made about the fact that we're not really taught how to collaborate Maybe talk about what's missing. What specifically are we not learning to do? Because we do learn sort of fundamental, you know, getting along on the playground kind of stuff, but what's missing? Well, can I say, I'm not sure we're teaching kids fundamental get along on the playground anymore because we're putting, you know, playground supervisors and parents as like this mediator of how to play everywhere. So, you know, we're not really teaching the kids to figure out their own solutions to some of life's simpler challenges. Isn't that fascinating? Oh my gosh. I think of a really undermining the abilities of our future collaborators by yeah. by curating all of the our kids' social experiences. But maybe we could talk on that in a little bit. But so we put, and I feel I'm pausing a little bit because I don't mean to equate workplace collaboration with what's happening in the third grade. So right. but there are some through lines. For example, we read, readily put people in groups and ask them to do things, whether it's the the group project in the college class where you need to give a presentation or at, you know, obviously at work, we're in groups all the time. So it's not the absence of group work that's the problem. It's the absence of kind of deconstructing the behavior. So in college, for instance, you know, I spent 14 years as a professor out at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. And, you know, the students would do group work, but then they would in terms of deciding how to proceed with that group work, they would almost always default to what's a a divide and conquer strategy. So here, I'll take the introduction, you take the methods, you take the data analysis, and we'll try to throw everything together and create something that looks like a discussion. That is absolutely a form of group work, but it's a form of group work where you don't really get those emergent properties of the, the truly spectacular things that could happen. We might say, oh, you need to be a good communicator and communication is one of the places where we see a decent amount of professional development, but we don't necessarily see conversations around how do you address it when somebody has dropped the ball? So somebody said they were going to do this thing and they show up to the next meeting and they haven't done it. How do you have that accountability conversation that truly holds them accountable, but also doesn't derail the relationship for the future together work that you need to do? And so they're just all these other ways uh, or other pieces that come into play for collaborating well that seem to be absent. And I think one of the reasons we're not teaching it is because, well, I mentioned the sink or swim thing that we think you're either good at it or you're bad. And I think the other thing is we have people who are leading organizations who are teaching the the students who themselves haven't been taught how to collaborate. So you have, have a lot of people just kind of guessing 
how to do it, or you have people who are incredible at it, but can't necessarily point to why they're incredible at it. What is it that's making it possible for them? So we end up with this very, I think of it as like this black box of, yeah, yeah, go, go collaborate well, but we're not sure what's inside the box to make that happen. Right. Oh my gosh. That's so incredibly fascinating. So fascinating. Okay. Recognizing that we only have so much time with you, unfortunately, but if we maybe get us started with where do you start? You just mentioned like sort of the default position oftentimes with a project and you mentioned college students, but I would argue this also happens in the corporate world as well. Okay. You do that. I'll do this. You do that. I'll do this. Because in some respects, it's kind of geared toward conflict avoidance. Like you sort of at the upfront, you're saying, let's sort of avoid conflict if we can, because we know that's likely to maybe jeopardize the project. How should we be starting when you you put this group of people together? Maybe they know each other, maybe they don't, and they've got to work toward a solution. Where do you start? Yeah, so I want to give a shout out here to Liam Davy. She has this fabulous book, The Good Fight, mm-hmm. about the critical importance of uh, conflict in our organization. So just A, this mindset, and I my thinking on this has really been advanced by her, this mindset of our job is to be in conflict within our organizational teams. That doesn't mean fighting. It means, though, that we are each advocating for a position that we have a responsibility to the organization to tug in productive tension on the possibilities to find the most optimal solution. So that's really cool. That, so there's, there's that piece. And then, you know, when I step into an organization, I'm coming in as a social psychologist. So the big question on my mind, or I should say the big framework is that behavior is always a function of who that person is and the environment that they're in. So that's my lens. So I right away start looking about, do we have collaborative individuals who, first of all, have the right skills around like the communication thing or basic time management or basic project management? I'll even notice things like, oh, here's somebody who just got assigned an action item in the meeting and they're not writing it down anywhere. That's interesting to me because I'm curious, how are they going to be able to follow through on that. And it might be a behavior I'll point out to that late. So those are personal sorts of things. Then I want to start looking at the environment in which those people exist. And there are lots of layers to environment. And these are the different influences on those people that give rise to those collaborative behaviors. So one of the first, and this is what the book is all about, one of the most proximal of those influences are the relationships that we're in. Are they high quality relationships? Is the work structured in a way that really leverages interdependencies and your behavior and my behavior to give rise to these shared consequences or outcomes? So looking at the relationships among people as part of that context, and then taking a a kind of the next layer of those environmental influences is, does this team or this organization employ tools and processes that actually enable collaborative action. So it could be their project management approach. It could be, wow, they, you know, they say they love collaboration, but you know, it's on their letterhead, but I'm not actually seeing them celebrating that anywhere too. And so then the the actually I'm starting to touch on the next layer out, which is organizational culture. So there are all these fireflies when you walk into an organization that are signaling to you, like their little booties are flashing 
saying like, we value collaboration or we don't. And it's way more complex than looking to see, does the word collaboration show up as one of the value words at the bottom of the letterhead? Like that's like pretty much irrelevant. If when you walk in, you know, you can look at things like their vendor contracts and their their vendor contracts offload all of the risk of that work together on the vendor. Like I worked with this one client who the contract they sent to me, the indemnification clause was basically saying, I can't sue them. And I said, so what about reciprocally? Can you sue me? And the answer is like, well, that's, you know, the, uh, this contract is to protect us. I'm like, no, the, the contract is about how it's going to guide our relationship. So I'm, I'm not willing to sign this because you're, you know, you're ignoring my interest, which is totally against my spirit. And so you can look at things like, if you look at the infrastructure of an organization, you can look at is collaboration even possible? If you start looking at the interfaces that are in place for how people work together, you can identify if collaboration is easy. And then you start looking at the way people are actually working together, their communities, um, what gets celebrated in the newsletter, and you start to realize whether or not collaboration is normative. And then you can, I love this one, start looking at what actually gets rewarded within the within the work to figure out if collaboration is rewarding. So the incentives, you know, people will often say, we love collaboration. It's so important to us. We're very collaborative. But then you look at, well, what are the bonuses based on? What is promotion based on? And it's often on individual performance. And, you know, any parent or pet owner is going to tell you that what gets rewarded gets repeated. So if you say you want collaboration, but you only are rewarding competitive behaviors, guess what? You're going to get competitive behaviors. So that gives you a sense of like all those different layers and what you could be thinking about when you're looking to improve collaborative behavior. Yeah. You know, I'm struck by what you just said, especially as it relates to organizations that reward risk-taking, right? And taking risks would potentially be an example of rewarding collaboration or evidence of collaboration. Because my guess is it may be difficult to sort of find those specific benchmarks to know how do you reward collaboration. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the risk-taking insight is brilliant. I mean, it's I feel like just over the past five, five years, maybe everyone's like, yeah, we like to fail fast. And, you know, we're like, we're a place where people can take risks. But as soon as somebody does take a risk and they stumble, then it's hands up. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, you've destroyed our timeline. What are we going to do? And it just it becomes chaos. And you learn really quickly, like, actually, we don't reward risk. We or we don't reward risk taking. We reward (laughs) safety and um, predictability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Deb, let's talk about when one of these collaboration groups goes sideways and you end up with hurt feelings or, you know, maybe a breach of trust, something along those lines. Talk about how you go about getting it back on track. Yeah. So, you know, if I say I'm in charge of creating a new team, I invest really heavily on establishing firm relationship quality before I even get into any of the the working stuff because you need high quality relationships in order to have the the context for the shared work to be effective. So in the situation where that you just brought up where there's been say a trust violation or you know somebody did drop the ball or somebody's now stealing credit for somebody else's work, all of those things are signaling you've got a relationship quality problem that for me becomes we have to address this first before we continue 
doing the the together work before we continue like chugging along with the task list and the Gantt charts and you know all that all of that stuff. And if we fail to to fix that relationship quality, we're putting ourselves, our projects, our teams, our organizations at risk. And so, first of all, still pause and say this is worth this is worth unpacking. Hopefully, this is one of those you know, basic skills people have the ability to say here's the impact of that behavior on me. Here's what I'm experiencing to share. Here's the story I'm telling myself. I know I'm not supposed to jump to conclusions. I'm just going to own my mind did it. Here's the story I'm telling myself. What have I got wrong here? What am I overlooking? What do I not know about? And importantly, what are we going to do next time to prevent this? And what amends perhaps like if somebody's stealing credit and sometimes people still like they, sometimes it's intentional and gross and malicious and you want to strangle that person for being a jerk. Other times it's, oh my gosh, we were really in that brainstorming session and I totally lost my sense of self versus you. And I couldn't remember whose fabulous idea that was. I just, you know, I, I didn't mean to take credit for it. I said, you know, that, that was my bad. And um, how are you going to fix it? It's, I'm going to go back to that audience or at least to the the person who invited me and say, you know what? I failed to give full credit to my collaborators who did this thing. And how do, are we going to make repairs? And what does that look like? And by the way, that practice of signaling how other people were involved is one of the things that gives us individual credibility because we are demonstrating to our other future potential collaborators that we're somebody who values our relationships and the ideas and the perspectives and the resources of other people. I got to say, if somebody's doing that, I'm noticing because I want to go work with them. I want to be part of their team. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about, it's this idea of really building a relationship by being authentic with when someone asks you, how are you doing? That you're honest about how you're doing and you're authentic and you're vulnerable. Talk about maybe where the line is. Because when I read that, I thought, you know, yes, that's great advice. But I also have been on the side where sometimes people naturally share a bit more and sometimes people share too much. (laughs) So where is the line of knowing when you're potentially sharing to the point of undermining your credibility and maybe the, you know, the quality of the relationship versus sharing in a way that allows you to be vulnerable, that allows you to be authentic, and that helps you build that connection. Give us some advice on how to do that. I love this question because I actually start, I'm finding myself choking on the word authenticity these days because I I feel- It's overused. I apologize. (laughs) No, no, no. But it's, I love the spirit of it, but it seems to have moved to this place of like, oh, say whatever's on your mind, say whatever you want, whatever emotions you're feeling, just spill them out and ask other people to carry those. And for me, to your your question, I start to think about, well, what are the environmental um, constraints that are necessary here? For example, what are my roles and responsibilities in this particular group at this time that, you know, they don't need to know what I did all weekend. They said, how was your weekend? I can answer that in 30, 30 seconds. And I honestly feel like 30 seconds is about the right amount of time. If somebody says, how are you? We should be able to take, you know, 30 seconds of disclosure is perfectly appropriate. If you're answering it in under two seconds, that's on you. You are undermining the quality of your relationships right there by not being more forthcoming. So there's that. Some of the other constraints are to think about 
what is the history of this relationship? So if this is the first time you've met someone, share something about your weekend to be real about it. But don't go into necessarily that you had your pet died or something like that, that might be maybe more emotional or more personal for you. Because what you want to look for is reciprocal self-disclosure. So I share, you share, I share, you share, and you want it to be escalating. So maybe the first time we talk, we we share something about the, you know, oh, it's a horrible commute to bed, you know, because I was stuck in traffic, I got to listen to the entirety of the She Said, She Said podcast or something like that. So it's it's a disclosure. You have signaled what your, it, one of your interests is this podcast. You've signaled that you are frustrated and you've also kind of signaled that you have a, a positive outlook that you are able to turn a negative into a positive. Great. Next time I see you, I might also mention that I, you know, I am having a bit of frustration on the team or something like that. So it moves up. And we know that this reciprocal escalating self-disclosure is one of the things that creates interpersonal closeness that helps engender trust. It helps promote resource sharing. Um, And it's such a simple thing to do. And so, you know, if you're showing up to the meeting five minutes early, whether it's in the conference room or the Zoom room, turn the dang camera on have some informal conversation. This is a chance to connect, to start to to build that fabric of community that we rely on to get amazing things done together. I love that. I love that. That's so great. Deb, let's talk about influence, which is a thread that runs throughout this podcast and all of my conversations. And, you know, recognizing you may have a very different view of influence. I tend to, to think that collaboration and the quality of our relationships is really important for influence. But maybe give me your thoughts on how in how collaboration and your work relates to maybe helping a person build and sustain more influence. Yeah, I so I suspect we're actually fairly aligned here. So if we go back to that behavior as a function of the person in the environment thing, you can absolutely influence other people's behavior by having that that proximal influence of being in positive relationship with them. So that that's step one is that, you know, how people act, how they show up. Um, it's sure it's our responsibility, but I think all of us know that that changes a little bit depending on who else is there, depending on the context. So that's to me like the most basic way that our relationships influence or exert influence. Okay. The biggest way is if we think about the ways that we're creating and being and showing up, whether it's in the workplace, at home, out there in our civic organizations, at the the neighborhood watch, at the parent-teacher association, if I play well with others and I'm not the jerk that people run away from because I'm bristly and can't seem to, to coordinate anything with anybody, my influence is necessarily limited because, as we said at the top of our conversation, the most amazing innovations, creations, solutions to shared problems, they are absolutely bubbling up in relationships. So we need to know how to be in relationships so that we can exert influence on the important things that are happening in the world. So I think, you know, I am a relationships researcher, so totally biased, but I think relationships are the ultimate influence out there. Yeah, I absolutely love that. There's another thread that I, I'm sort of hesitating whether I should bring this up, but I think it's so fundamental and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place. And that is that we're so divided 
we're so polarized as a country and as a world, and people have really lost the ability to get along, to have conversations that might be, you know, quote unquote, triggering or upsetting in some way, and that they just, they can't find that middle ground. Maybe talk even more big picture beyond the organizations, beyond like our personal relationships, sort of how this work fits into that broader context. Yeah. So I, I'm of the opinion that none of us has cornered the the perceptual market, that somehow our vantage point or our viewpoint alone is whole or that it's correct or that it's the one everybody else should have. So I, I come at the from the very foundation of I am a limited human, singular person. I know that I can't know it all, see it all, do it all, be it all, period. That's true in the workplace and it's true everywhere beyond. Because of that, that means that to be my most effective, influential, knowledgeable self, I have got to be in partnership and in relationship with other people who ideally in my mind see the world from a different vantage point. So you can imagine, yeah, you know, I've got this coffee cup on my sitting here on my desk. And you can imagine if I put that cup on the desk and and I don't, you know, I'm from another world. I don't know that there's this thing called a coffee cup, but I look at it, I can only see one angle. I can only describe the characteristics from this one vantage point. And imagine I'm I'm frozen in space and time and I really can't, I can't move around it to look at another angle. It means that the only way for me to fully understand this object is that there are other beings surrounding it who can tell me what they're seeing. So kind of, you know, crazy to think about in terms of a coffee cup. But what if we think about it in terms of how to solve poverty or how are we going to innovate the big solution? It's through being in relationship and through being in relationship with people who see the world differently that we become able to do that. So it really, for me, opens the door to two qualities in particular. One is curiosity. You know, my absolute, I have two favorite questions. One of them is, how do you see it? The other is, how might we? But relevant to this, how do you, how do you see it? So that we don't assume other people are seeing the world the same way we do. And then the second quality is intellectual humility. So knowing that, you know, I, I don't see it all. There's no way I can possibly see it all. So those two values of curiosity and intellectual humility bring us into relationships, I think, very constructively with people who who see the world differently, because rather than seeing them as an adversary or as somebody who's going to trigger us or as somebody who I need to go convince that they're, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, instead, it becomes somebody that I can explore the world with. And my understanding of the world will be enriched because I got to do that with them. I love that. I really love that. You have a very interesting background. And I know you share in the beginning of the book a bit about why collaboration became such an important theme in your life. Can you share with us a bit of your origin story and kind of how you got here? Yeah. So the book opens with the line, let's see if I can get it right. The trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD. These are my three great teachers of collaboration. And I didn't know it at the time. So this is admittedly a, a retrofitted thematic identification, <laughs> if that makes sense. But I, I grew up and I, I grew up in a double wide trailer. And by growing up, I guess I was there from, I think, probably age two, maybe age one, up through fifth grade. So, you know, the formative childhood years. And it was a double wide trailer, North Platte, Nebraska. And there were really two big rules 
One was because, you know, it's one of those spaces where the kids would just kind of spill out in the morning and the parents would be at work or would stay inside. But the two big rules were you don't leave the, the chain link fence that surrounded the, the trailer park. So there were clear boundaries of where you could go and not go. And if somebody was seriously hurt, then you went and got a parent. And by seriously hurt, the example that I remember very clearly was, you know, one of the kids jumping off of a, a tin shed to try to catapult another kid and landed on a board with a nail and then like it like hit him. So he was like, bleed. I mean, that was, that was really like, oh, maybe we should have known better. So, you know, this is not necessarily the way that you protect all injury, but those were the, the two rules. And what's amazing about it is it meant that as kids, we had opportunity after opportunity to develop our muscle of being in relationship with others of figuring out what are we going to play? How are we going to play it? What rules do we want to use today? If somebody violates the rules, what are we going to do about it? What are the consequences for them so that they don't do it again, but also so that they'll play with us again in the future? So how do you walk that line of holding your own interest and the interest of other people in this constructive tension? You know, maybe it's about like you learn how to take turns or it's about, well, I suppose we could add that rule. Sure. And so, you know, it was a very cool play mat to be on in terms of figuring out how to how to play well with others. So that was the, you know, the, the trailer park piece. And then this one is, you know, a little bit perverse in the sense of I think my parents' alcoholism also taught me a lot about how to rely on relationships because, what, you know, one of the things that anyone who grows up amid addiction figures out is that the adults in the space are not necessarily able to provide. They don't necessarily track other people's interests like the kids' interest nor are they able to provide for those interests or be responsive to them. And so, you know, it's a kind of unfortunate, obviously unfortunate, but like that kids sometimes grow up with a lot of deprivation and neglect, but they still often are survivors and thrivers. And one of the ways I did that, and I, you know, I didn't set out, like I didn't have a notebook with me trying to figure out what are the ways I could get affection and attention and security and food sometimes, things like that. It's not like I was being calculated of, oh, I should go turn to my teachers and my friends, parents and whatnot. But somehow my younger self figured that out. And I had all these other adults outside of my home who did take me under their wing and who provided for, you know, really there were absolutely food moments and there were absolutely transportation moments and clothing moments and things like that. But they just took care of me. And I am so grateful that whatever I was doing at the time that I was attracting their attention and affection and care because I, you know, I turned out just fine, you know, and I'm very grateful for that. It's everybody from, you know, teachers and yeah, my friends, parents and youth group leaders. Just I, if I close my eyes for 10 seconds, you know, a hundred names pop up of people who had this positive influence. And so I point to that as, you know, as part of my understanding of why relationships are so important and why I wanted to to learn about them in graduate school where I got to go on. And, you know, it was never assumed that I would go to college, much less graduate school. And even that story, you know, it, it points to a high school guidance counselor who saw who saw real potential and opportunity for me and helped me helped me get there. But when I got to grad school and realized there was this whole field that you could study the psychology of relationships. I totally fell in love. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's amazing. What an incredible story. That is really incredible. I know you also went on to help. I believe you're a founding member of the Heterodox Academy. 
Maybe talk a bit about that. I've been fascinated by it since I first learned about it. Talk about what that is and why, sort of how that fits into your broader work. Yeah, so I it was after the 2016 election that Heterodox Academy came on. So it had existed as an informal group of professors who were concerned about the absence of viewpoint diversity in the academy and in particular in their research and that there were certain questions that seemed to be off limits that if you asked them, you were going to get all sorts of negative attention from colleagues from the press and whatnot. But it wasn't until after the 2016 election that I became aware that there was this group of people doing this. But what I had noticed on campuses is that people were melting down, that even though you know a large proportion of people had, in fact, you know, voted for Donald Trump, but on campus, everyone was like, oh my God, I had no idea this was even a remote possibility. I don't know anybody who is interested in Donald Trump. I myself, not a supporter of Donald Trump, but I was very concerned, like, wait a second, that means that we are so disconnected with different viewpoints that are there. What does that mean? And, you know, I heard things happening where more conservative colleagues, for instance, had come to my office and closed the doors and shared that they were excited about these results, but that they couldn't, they felt like they couldn't say anything on campus because they were going to lose their jobs or something like that. It's like, oh man, what are we doing? This I'm really worried that we cannot talk about these different viewpoints. Thinking back to what I was just saying about the value of engaging with people who have different perspectives. And so I decided to teach this class the next semester called I'm Right, You're Wrong about the psychology of viewpoint diversity. And it was going to be a, a course for first-year students. It's one of their writing courses. And you know, we, we decided, or I decided I wanted to read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. And I wanted the students to read Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions. And that we would just figure out, like, what do we think about this whole viewpoint diversity thing? And it was a freshman course. But a senior saw it in the catalog. And he came up to me and he said, Prof Bashik, I'm super excited for your class. And I said, Ron, awesome. But the thing is, is you're a senior, so you can't really take it without missing a beat. He said, but you'll teach it to me independent study, right? Okay, yeah, let's do it. So he ended up being like my co-teacher for developing this class. He's the one who told me about Heterodox Academy. And I read the website, fell in love with this idea of, yeah, of course we need different perspectives. Yeah. So I became a member. And then a couple months later, um, it was in the summer, this email comes across from Jonathan Haidt saying that they were looking for their first executive director. Now, mind you, I'm a tenured full professor at an amazing institution, my absolute dream job that I love. But when I saw that email, I was, oh my gosh, I, I need to apply for this. I want to go be part of the solution. Long story short, I got the job. I moved cross country as a single mom with an eight-year-old in tow. I leave the sector that I've known of higher ed. I move into, I guess it's, you know, I would say Heterodox Academy is still a, and obviously higher ed, but now I'm leading a national nonprofit. I'm putting the organs in the organization. And it just, the the mission of that organization lights my heart up because it really is about, you know, if, if we're at a university or a college, the whole point of those institutions is the creation and exploration of ideas and knowledge and if we're going to do that, we've got to be able to tolerate unpopular opinion. We have to be able to ask difficult questions of data, of ourselves, of the social world we're embedded in. And we need to be able to do it in a way where it's okay to do. We're not going to lose our jobs over it. And so 
I enjoyed really digging into that mission for three years, got the organization. I said I put the organs in the organization. We got it launched. We got us 501c3 status and, you know, created, you know, like membership structures and all of these great things. And I'm no longer employed by the organization, but I still obviously follow their work and am excited about the good work they're doing out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's incredibly important work. And it does feel like it's a very high mountain. (laughs) It's a very big challenge that feels like it's only getting bigger. You know, it's, it's really, I think it's too big of a question to try to tackle here unless you have like some kind of quick responses to what should change? I mean, what? how should people be thinking about this problem? Because the the idea to me of not having diversity of thought and opinion in the classroom, whether it's in high school, middle school, elementary school, certainly in college, like it blows my mind that this is, we're even having this conversation and yet it's a really big conversation and it's a really big problem. What do we do? So for me, this connects directly to collaboration. So first of all, chin up and look and figure out who the other people are who are advocating for this and go into community with them and share ideas and share the resources, share the pain, share the frustration, because all of that is real. And there are, um, we, when I was at Heterodox Academy, we needed to figure out what is our, our bumper sticker for this organization. And one of our members reached out and said, you know what it is? It's that great minds don't always think alike. And so that's the that's what's all over the HXA website now. And it comes from one of the members. Love that. But it's absolutely true. Like there are plenty, there are so many people out there who do have this perspective, who don't necessarily think that they can raise their hand to, to say that they have their perspective. And so finding these communities where it exists, whether it's HXA or a ton of other organizations that like, the, I'm thinking of the How Do We Fix It podcast or the Uncommon Ground group. There are they're these groups talking about it. So go find them, share their resources. For me, it's about forming the community and taking collective action. And I'll even say I was at a, a parent-teacher association. No, 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 it wasn't. It was a, a meeting the other day on school safety for middle schoolers. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to keep my kids safe. I'm going to go listen to this. And so it was a Zoom call where, yeah, I'm the only one with my camera on as usual. I, I got to say, I think we need to turn our cameras back on whenever possible. It's so hard as a presenter to, to be talking to a bunch of square boxes and getting no feedback. So anyway, I take it as my personal responsibility to just show up to these meetings with my dang camera on. But one of the ideas that came up is like, oh, we make sure you're telling your kids don't talk to strangers. And I felt inside, I'm like, that is the worst advice. And so I raised my hand and take personal responsibility for bringing another viewpoint into the space. Is it going to improve the world? I don't know, but I felt like I can't I can't sit back and be the person who just swallows that advice. And it's like, you know, I'm going to offer a counter perspective, which is I think we need to teach our kids that it's okay to talk to strangers. It's okay to connect with people that you didn't know before. You don't talk to strangers who give you the creeps or who are sending off your spidey sense. Like, yeah, still pay attention to how am I feeling and honor those those boundaries that that's signaling for you. But the idea that we're communicating to our kids that the world is filled full of danger and dangerous people who are out to get you as like, I don't think we're doing them a long-term favor in terms of their ability to develop into competent and confident humans that our world needs. And so it was like just this little tiny moment of viewpoint diversity of bringing in another perspective, not to shove it on anybody else, but to say, Hey, look, there's another way of looking at it. 
sure enough, one of those other parents who was in the black box who I couldn't see texted me and said, thank you for bringing that up. You know, there's an awful lot of parental protectionism and I'm wondering what the consequences for our kids. So we found each other because I took the risk of putting myself out there. And I think whether it's in higher ed in our elementary schools, inviting the conversation with questions is, a, is one of the great strategies. So again, being curious, how are, how are other people seeing this or say, I don't know, maybe I'd be oddball out, but I'd like to share another perspective can open those doors a little bit. And if nothing else, it tells everybody else not to assume everyone's thinking the same way as them. Yeah. Oh, Deb, that's really, that's so great. I have loved this conversation. We could talk for a long, long time, and hopefully I can have you back again, because this has been fantastic. I've learned a lot. I know my audience will really appreciate this as well. So thank you for the time. I know you're super busy with the book tour. Again, the book is called Collabor Hate. I've included a link in the show notes where folks can buy the book. Deb, thank you again. My absolute pleasure. And I have to say, I don't know. I know that your listeners are listening to this. They can't see us. But we are both totally surrounded by the same orange. And so I have been loving that while we're talking. So thank you for inviting me on and for giving me the chance to talk about these ideas that are so near and dear to my heart. And I absolutely think these are the things that help us as as women have that influence and positive impact on the world. Amen. Love it. Thank you, Deb. Hey, friend, thanks so much for joining me today for episode 230, my conversation with Dr. Deb Mashik. You will find links to Deb's new book, Collabor Hate, and her website in the show notes for this episode. The best place to find the show notes is on my website at she said she said podcast.com. Just click on episode 230. There on the website, you will also find a free downloadable transcript of this episode as well. And of course, if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing some love with your favorite podcast host, hopefully that's me, in the form of a review or send me a message via the contact link in the show notes. Or you can message me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. I would truly love to hear from you. Until next week, you take care and I'll talk to you soon. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.